The reading is on page 100, uh, 1000, sorry, and 19. Um, Second Peter, chapter three. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Christine, for reading. And welcome to those who are joining us this afternoon. I'm aware that some of us will have missed the talk this morning. And the talks are being recorded. So at some point later on the week, if you want to catch up or go back and listen to something, they'll be online. So I wonder, what's 
Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it sounds very quiet to me. I wonder, what's the craziest sounding thing you have ever been told? What about any of these? This bit of mass will be useful for the rest of your life. <laughs> or Scotland's going to have a heat wave. That's probably not so crazy anymore, is it? Uh, you are loved. We're going into lockdown, and you can only leave your house for one hour a day. And we lived through that one, and it's still hard to believe, isn't it? Seeing the toilet rammed full of three rolls of toilet paper, and all your kids protesting, it definitely wasn't me. I was once told that all of my student loan debt had been paid off by someone. Now, that was a pretty crazy moment. But I think by far, the craziest sounding thing I've been told was also the single most practical and useful piece of advice I have ever been given as a Christian woman. It affects the whole shape of my life in a profound way on a daily basis. And here it is. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming back to judge and rescue, and perhaps crazier sounding still, it has everything to do with how we live our lives now. And yes, it was the Apostle Peter who told it to me. Uh, well, he passed it on from Jesus, who told it to him, who was coloring in the picture predicted by the Old Testament prophets. And if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, I think you're probably hoping you were sitting closer to the exit. But even as a Christian, it is the craziest sounding thing I've ever been told because, well, I mean, come on. We're talking about someone I can't see, coming back from somewhere I have never been, to do something I have never experienced. Crazy sounding because few other people believe it. Because it's hard to imagine. Because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, last year, Josh's nursery worker shared with me how Josh was going around to each teacher and asking them if they really knew Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I felt a wave of panic at the thought of him one day telling them that Jesus was going to take him home. Might as well have told them that we think aliens are coming for us. It's just all in the same category for them. And he announced out of the blue in the car yesterday that there's going to be no false teeth in the new creation. So who knows what they're hearing at nursery? I don't know. But what Peter says is also one of the most practical things I've ever been told. Because if we know for certain how things are going to end, it should shape how we live now. So if you know you're going to run a marathon in October, you start eating healthy, you lift weights, you start training now. If you know you're going on holiday in August, if you should be so lucky, you start shit saving up and booking your flights now. If you know you're going to move house, you stop the repairs on your current home and you start packing. Jesus coming again just might not be something that we think about on a daily basis. Even our gospel explanation might go something like this. Well, God made the world good. We rebelled against our makers. Sin ruined the world. Jesus came to rescue us from our broken relationship with God and all of its effects. The end. Perhaps it's hard to think about Jesus returning because life is comfortable here. 
Maybe we secretly hope it's not true because that might spoil our fun now. Or maybe we don't like thinking about the day of the Lord. It involves thinking about scary things like fire and the world being shaken. Jesus, unpacking all that the Old Testament previews, speaks of this final day many times with language we wish wasn't quite so harsh. Or perhaps we find it desperately sad to think about Jesus returning because of loved ones who we fear would not be safe on that day. Or maybe you are someone who clings to this promise of his return, longing for him to wipe away every tear, all that's bad and death. And there are Bible passages that help each of those people that I mentioned. However, the particular day of the Lord angle that Peter focuses on in this passage is, why? Why hasn't it happened yet as he promised it would? Why is it worth shaping all of our lives around this very great and precious promise that Jesus is going to return to judge and rescue? What difference does the day of the Lord make to my life now? And thinking hard about this promise and letting it shape the rest of our lives might be the single most practical thing we do today and tomorrow and every day until Jesus returns. Listen, I know it's been a long day, but please do try to stay awake. This is my sleepiest time of the day with chronic fatigue, so I'll try to stay awake if you try to stay awake. Have a wiggle, poke yourself in the eye, do whatever you need to do, because we need to try to focus for the next wee while, because I think 2 Peter 3 will change our lives if we let it. Our time is short, so we will be running at quite a fast pace, and we can't delve deeply into everything. Um, And as I mentioned, the talks are being recorded, so if I speak too fast, you can go back and listen again. And there's an outline in the booklets where you can follow along if that's helpful. But first, we just need to spend a few minutes understanding why Peter writes an entire chapter on Jesus' return. So immediately before chapter 3, Peter has been telling us about the false teachers in chapter 2. And in 2 verse 1, Peter explains false teachers are covertly bringing in heretical teaching. They're denying Jesus as their Lord, their master. They were promoting a whatever-feels-good lifestyle because there's not going to be any eternal consequences. Life is about the here and now, all about enjoying the freedom that Jesus gives. Jesus is love, not judge, they say, ignoring the Old Testament and Jesus' own teaching. However, Chapter 1 this morning reminded us that we do know God. He has saved us. We have, remember chapter 1, verse 4, escaped from the corruption that's in the world. And 1, verse 9, to forget this, is to be so short-sighted we might as well be blind, having forgotten that we've been cleansed from our sins. But the false teachers, they want to drag us back into the life we've been rescued from. And 2 verse 22 puts it really graphically. Peter says the false teachers are like a dog that returns to its vomit. Or like a pig, after having a bath, just goes straight back to the mud. 
They're promoting a return to the life we've escaped from, that we've been cleansed from. And if there are no consequences, why wouldn't you? It makes for a far less complicated life now. And that's where knowing Peter's immensely crazy-sounding truth comes in. If the reality of Jesus' return and his outcome are what we filter all of our lives through, then we can cut through the fog of deception, we can counter the pull of returning to the cesspool, and we can actually want to grow in godliness now while we wait. So let's dive into chapter 3. We're on page 1019 if you've lost it. And you'll see on the outline that we have three points this afternoon. And the first point is verse 1 to 7. Don't overlook the fact that the day of the Lord is coming, and it's coming certainly, despite scoffers. So just like in chapter 1, Peter has no new information for us, but is writing to remind of what we already know. And what do we know? Well, look down at verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. If Peter's readers have been reading their Old Testament and listening to all that Peter and Paul and the other New Testament writers have passed on to them, they will be expecting false teachers in the last days. And the last days is just a way of referring to the period of time between Jesus' first coming, so Christmas, and his second coming, the day of the Lord. And remember, chapter 2 said that these scoffers would seem like they were following Jesus. They'd be on the church council. They'd make you laugh on Radio 2's Thought of the Day. They'd have books being sold in Christian bookshops. They would lead engaging Christian conferences. They'd teach at respected Bible colleges. They'd lead thriving churches. Now, we expect ridicule or rolled eyes from our school pals, our work colleagues, the parent at the school gate. Of course, those who aren't following Jesus will think that the idea of him coming back is bizarre, and you shaping your life around it is a bit extreme. But Peter is reminding us not to be thrown by what seem like insiders, calling into question the day of the Lord when Jesus returns to judge and rescue. And what's the sort of thing these scoffers say? Well, look down at verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. How quaint, they laugh. I didn't think there were actually people left who took things so literally. Follow the facts. They're undeniable. History's on our side. If Jesus is coming back, then uh, where is he? I think it's easy to sympathize with these scoffing false teachers, because it has been a long time. And when Peter was writing this, it had only been around 30 years since Jesus died and ascended into heaven. And for us, it's been over 2,000 years. So don't they have a point? However, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, 
for what no one taught them, so what they misunderstood was... No, that's not what it says, is it? It says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says they aren't sincere, yet just misguided. Rather, they are, verse 3, they're motivated by their sinful desires. They've got skin in the game, and they deliberately set aside truth, ignoring bits of history, especially Genesis 1 to 9. There's a very inconvenient truth staring them in the face, so they just throw it out. Problem solved. And what is it that they're deliberately overlooking? Well, verse 5, that the world was made by God by his word. So God spoke, the waters moved, and the world was created. Easy. Verse 6, that the earth was judged with water by his word. So Noah and the devastating flooding of the whole earth when God judged the wickedness of humanity. It wasn't hard for God to speak and just rearrange the water again. And so verse 7, the heavens and earth that now exist post-flood are awaiting judgment by the same word, stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The flood was like an advance warning system, alerting us of what will happen, a, a mini picture of what's in store for all of creation, the heavens and the earth. And the Old Testament and Jesus warn us of it. Uh, I recently came across a set of choose-your-own-adventure books in a charity shop. I don't know if any of you have ever read those. Show of hands, anybody read Choose Your Okay, you know what I'm talking about then, good. So I loved them when I was a kid. And the idea is that at various points in the story, you decide what happens next. So if you think the evil king should be punished, well, turn to page 35. Or if you think the evil king is misunderstood and he deserves a second chance, then you should skip to page 40. It's really fun to read, but it's hazardous to read the Bible that way. Don't believe in Jesus returning to judge? Just skip to page 60. Our words can often seem flimsy, unreliable, ever-changing, but God's word is in a whole different league. God's word was powerful enough to create the world and also to judge the same world in Noah's day. And God will speak again, and the whole of creation will be judged by fire. God's already written the end of the story. You can't choose your preferred ending. So, despite sounding sophisticated, facts and history are not on the scoffer's side. They're simply trying to find a way to justify their ungodly living. The world won't continue on the same forever. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's strange, isn't it? It's actually more certain that the whole cosmos, as we know it, ceases to exist than for God to change his mind. 
We can trust him to do what he says he will do. So, don't overlook the fact that the day of the Lord is coming certainly, definitely, despite scoffers. Which brings us to subpoint B on the outline, verses 8 to 10. The day of the Lord will come suddenly, despite the delay. The scoffing false teachers overlooked things in verse 5, says Peter. Now you don't overlook, don't you forget that God sees time with a perspective that we lack. Look down at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It would seem that Peter's been having quiet times in Psalm 90, which is all about God being eternal. And we don't have time to mine all of the riches of that psalm today, but it gives God's perspective on time. He existed before the mountains were formed, before the earth was formed, before dinosaurs, before smartphones. And even some of us can remember those days. The smartphone days, not the dinosaur days, by the way. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The the false teachers claim that a long time has gone by, and so judgment won't happen because everything goes on as it always has. But Peter says God doesn't work to our time schedules. He existed before the world did, and our lives are so short compared to his eternity. God sees time with a perspective we lack. And you've probably experienced this to some degree. So, Think about how fast time seems to go by when you're on holiday, but how slow it goes on a Tuesday afternoon. Or, you know, how a child will ask if it's nearly their birthday, even though they just had one last month. A month is forever to a child. We're limited by time in a way that God never has been. And if with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and we've been waiting for him to return for 2,000-ish years, then for God, it's been about two-ish days. Factoring this in, then, look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. These beloved folk that Peter is writing to haven't experienced the return of the Lord yet, but it's not because he won't, and it's not because he's slow. Did you see why it was? It's because he's patient. I wonder if you were expecting that. Let's just stop for a moment and imagine what kind of patience is required of the Lord to delay judgment. So since time began, the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, humanity mocking his existence, his power, his relevance. He hears the scoffers' taunts and the havoc that they wreak on his children. He witnesses all the evil that has been everywhere at every time, every life taken, every threat made, every bit of violence, all of the injustice and soul-destroying sorrow. He knows the cost endured by those who follow him as Lord and Savior in a hostile and bloodthirsty world. 
Why has he not come back to judge like he said he would? Well, says Peter, to give us time to turn around, to repent, to not be cut off from him eternally, because he is patient. And if you're a Christian, how glad are you that he was patient to wait for you to trust in Jesus before calling time on the world? Now is the time of salvation, and the Lord patiently delaying judgment so that people make it to the new heavens and the new earth is more important than anything, especially if verse 10 is going to happen. Because what will it be like when Jesus returns? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We won't be expecting the day of the Lord. I think that's what the thief language is getting at. It's it's going to come suddenly. So if we knew when the burglar was going to pay us a visit, then we wouldn't need contents insurance, would we? And it's a shock if you've ever had your car details hacked online or you've been pickpocketed on public transport. Uh, I once had all the contents of my wallet stolen while I was working for a church in London. I, I left the office for five minutes because I wasn't expecting a thief to sneak in the office door. There was no telltale signs that I was about to have my bank details compromised. Life will be going on as it always has. And then, out of nowhere, the day of the Lord. And there has never been a day like it before. The whole chapter uses the language of burning, melting, of being dissolved. It's a sobering picture of all that seems so fixed, so immovable. The heavens, the earth, the whole cosmos passing away with a roar, a universal upheaval. There will be nowhere to hide, says the end of verse 10. The earth and all the works done on it will be exposed, laid bare, found. It is really hard to get our minds around this day, isn't it? Because it both sounds utterly terrifying and because it's just really difficult to comprehend But Peter thinks our eternal lives depend on living in light of it. And he's got even more to motivate us to do so. Which brings us to our second point, looking at verses 11 to 13. So let this certain truth shape your living while you wait, because the only thing that lasts is righteousness. Do I really need to make the effort to be ever-growing in godliness? I mean, won't Jesus just sort me out in the end anyways? I will grow in godliness when I get older, but not yet. Surely a bit of dabbling in the life I was rescued from isn't going to kill me. Well, unlike the false teachers who are being driven by their instincts like animals, Peter says we're to do the opposite, to live in light of what we know is coming of what we're waiting for, because, and this is really, really important, the only thing that lasts, that survives this dreadful day of judgment, is righteousness. 
So look down at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It doesn't make sense to go back to the world we were rescued from. It's not a good investment. Look at what happens to it all in the end. And given what's going to happen to the universe, then what sort of women should we be? Well, women whose lives are shaped in the here and now in light of the coming day of the Lord. Women who are making every effort to grow in godliness, ever eager to be more like the Lord we are waiting to meet. And it will never be a wasted effort, a pointless exercise, a bad investment. Did you spot why? We've seen this future judgment is certain and it's going to come suddenly, but we're also waiting for something else. Verse 13. I think this is such a beautiful and wonderful truth. According to the Lord's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We are waiting for our eternal home, the home of all that is pure, good, lovely, just, upright. What's so good about the home of righteousness? Well, for starters, Jesus will be there. My failure to live up to my own standards will cease. There's going to be nothing to sour our relationships. There's going to be, we'll be able to love the Lord like we long to. There's no gossip, no trying to live up to beauty standards, no frustration at failing to be godly with aching and aging bodies. It is our real home in a way this present world is not and never could be. We are to be longing for it and seeking to get ready for it. And did you notice that Peter again mentions counting the patience of our Lord as salvation? Now, we'd expect him to apply that fact, God is patient, so delaying judgment, as a kick up the bum to evangelize. And, you know, who wouldn't want to after seeing what's going to happen on the day of the Lord? And many other passages do that explicitly. But Peter has a different angle on the application of God's patience delaying judgment. He applies by saying, so seek to grow in godliness. It's really important we get this because it's just not the way we're used to thinking. Since this is the goal of our salvation, the reason Jesus washed our sin away, the reason we escape from the corrupt, me-centered world, Since Jesus lives there, will we not then make every effort in anticipation of our eternal home? It's so frustrating to invest in something that isn't worth it in the end. So property that dramatically drops in value, or that must-have toy your nephew needs and then abandons it after a week, or making a cake to share with your friends and realizing your tiredness means you have chucked all four eggs in, shell and all. 
And that actually happened to me. I should have just bought the cake instead of trying to make it when I was so tired. It was a complete waste. But growing and living godly lives is never, ever a waste of time or energy. Because the only things that will survive the certain and sudden day of Jesus' judgment will be godliness and people who are trusting Jesus. I asked women of various ages at Chalmers to write this talk for me, the application bit. I said, what difference would thinking about all of this make to daily life? And we're out of time to go through it all. They sent me so many good things, but here's a taster. They said it would make me want to pay attention to godliness and make growing in it a bigger priority. I think someone's been reading 2 Peter there. Help me want to read my Bible and know Jesus more. It would help me deal with the grief and anger I feel about the wickedness in the world. It would cause me to stress less about my children's exam results. It would ease various anxieties. It would give purpose to my retirement. It would shape who I would be willing to date and marry. It would make me more determined to persevere in Bible time with the kids. It would free me up to give my time, energy, and money to what will last. It would give me more confidence in sticking with Jesus. And my personal favorite, one said, it would make me impatient to be home with Jesus already. Well, very briefly, our last point, verses 14 to 16. So let this certain truth shape your living while you wait, because we've seen only righteousness last, and we are waiting for Jesus to take us home. We're out of time, so let's just read verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. What you believe and how you live are connected. So, says Peter, because you're awaiting for a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, live like it. Jesus is coming to find us, and may we be eager to be found by him. I began this talk by sharing with you the craziest sounding things I have ever been told, but in actual fact, I think the crazier thing to say is that there will be no judgment day, no one held accountable, no reason to live life now in light of what's to come, no link between what I believe and how I live, that Jesus says rescue of me and promise again to, to, to return again has no bearing on my life. You see, good application of the Bible isn't always doing. Sometimes it's knowing and living in light of what you know. And there is nothing more practical than knowing Jesus and growing in knowing him more. The knowing what to prioritize now in light of a certain end. The knowing that the day of the Lord is coming and we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, knowing that the only things to survive that day will be righteousness and precious people 
Jesus has made righteous. It is not crazy to live life now in light of what you know will happen later. So let's end with the application of all that Peter has been saying. That's in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're not a God who leaves us in the dark. You show us what you're like. You've revealed your salvation plan to us. You've given us forewarning. And we thank you for the beautiful glimpses of your patience that we have seen in this passage, as well as assurance that you will do what you said you will do, that you will come back to judge and to rescue. And I pray that in light of that truth, in light of your great patience, that we would be women eager to be growing in knowing you, to be growing in lives that show that we know you, that we would want to be godly, to be growing in holiness. And please, would you help us to strive to that end with the help of your word and your spirit and one another. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.